and welcome to our worship this morning which is as you can see at Bill Helvey Church uh, it's nice to be back uh, here in this familiar space and uh, you're very welcome at worship whether you're a regular with us or whether you're a visitor today it's great to have you along uh, we're going to begin uh, in the words of the hymn praise my soul the king of heaven let's worship God together
Let's join our hearts together in prayer now. Let us pray. Before the sunlight, before the mountains, before birdsong, before breath, you, maker of all, were there. You are the craftsman of the universe, the keeper of time, the poet of creation, the loving parent of it all. And we who inhabit this world of your making, who rely on it for our well-being, we who have also been shaped by your hand and raised by your love, fall silent at the wonder and the mystery of all that surrounds us, remembering again that we are the blessed children of a gracious God. And if we've missed the world even as we've lived in it, if we've glanced for a second at what took millions of years to evolve, if we've eaten food with more greed than gratitude, if we've erased your fingerprints with our footprints, if we've made nature mourn, then Lord forgive us and help us to be better. Lord, in the beginning you saw all that you had made and you declared it good. And we dare to believe that in the end you will bring ultimate reconciliation through Christ and call it good again. We take you at your word when you say, Behold, I make all things new. So as people learning to live out of your love and forgiveness, using our freedom to gladly enter your service. We ask you to enlarge our hearts that they might contain more of you. Expand our minds that we might understand more of you. Quicken our bodies that they might more readily serve you and inspire our souls that we might live in solidarity with you for our own sake but also as a witness to the world. So hear our prayers because we ask all these things in Christ's name. And in his name we pray together saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our reading this morning is taken from Luke 13, reading from verse 1. And I'm reading from the message translation of the Bible. Luke 13 verse 1. About that time, some people came up and told him about the Galileans Pilate had killed while they were at worship, mixing their blood with the blood of the sacrifices on the altar. Jesus responded, Do you think those murdered Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Not at all. Unless you turn to God, you too will die. 
And those 18 in Jerusalem the other day, the ones crushed and killed when the Tower of Siloam collapsed and fell on them, do you think they were worse citizens than all other Jerusalemites? Not at all. Unless you turn to God, you too will die. Amen. For those of you just joining us uh, for the first time this morning, this is the second of what is now going to be a three-part series looking at the problem of evil. And if you haven't watched uh, last week's service yet, I would recommend that you head back and you take that one in first. Uh, but for those who tuned in last week, let me give you uh, a quick recap of what we were saying. The classic problem of evil is this. How can a God who is all-powerful and all-good allow evil and suffering to exist in the world? As Christians, we trust in God's goodness and in God's power, but we also have to acknowledge the reality of evil in the world. How do we hold those three truths together? Well, it's not easy. Last week, I told you about the devastation of Lisbon in 1755 with the loss of between 60 and 100,000 lives. And for some folk, that event was enough. And indeed, those kinds of events are enough to put the nail in the coffin for any idea that there might be a God who's both good and powerful. They can't believe it in the light of events like that. And then I spoke to the idea that God's sovereignty means that he pulls all the strings all of the time, an idea which might make logical sense, but seems to leave God holding the smoking gun in every human misfortune and tragedy, a view which ultimately calls his goodness into question. But this morning I want to offer another way of looking at things, which I think does justice to what the Bible teaches, but also to common sense and to the realities of life as we know them. And that is not an unimportant point, I think. We don't get to have these conversations above the grid of life. They're not just intellectual questions to kick around. Whatever understanding we come to about these matters, has to work in the real world and it has to allow us to speak into the real loss and tragedy that folks suffer with the honesty and the compassion of Jesus. And thinking of Jesus, one of the things that he often did was help us to understand God by reflecting on everyday life, fields, farms, feasting, and families. And that's where I want to begin this morning with an analogy from family life. When you become a parent, you stay the same, but you also change in some ways. Your personality doesn't change, your abilities don't change. Mums will remind me that their bodies do change massively, and it takes a lot of time and effort to get them back to where they were. But the real change that comes is the new relational context that you find yourselves in. 
Parenting is this amazing journey which brings incredible gifts and blessings, but also some limitations. You have to submit yourself to nappy changing, broken sleep, wiping pureed carrot off the floor and the walls, watching the same DVDs so many times you know whole sections off by heart. You don't get to come and go the way you used to. Your time is no longer your own. You have new responsibilities. Entering into the covenant of parenthood, a good parent consents to limiting some of his or her freedoms in the interests of love. They don't become different people or lesser people, but they do choose to place limits on themselves for the sake of their child. And so in that way, they create a safe space where the child can begin to make their own choices. They give the child some autonomy. And sometimes that goes well, and sometimes it goes badly, and there are tears and angry words. But the ultimate aim is to help the child learn to use their freedom wisely. And there's a balance to be found between hovering over them like a helicopter, whisking them up off the ground every time they're going to stub their toe, and being so disinterested that you keep watching the telly while they're in the kitchen juggling with the steak knives. You have to find the balance. And every parent knows this to be true. Anyone who has ever taught a child to ride a bicycle knows that feeling. You spend hours, if not days, running along behind them and holding the saddle until finally you let go and they pedal off on their own. And the aim is always to let go, but the moment you let go, you're taking a risk. There might be potholes or speed bumps in the road. The child might be idiotic and try and go too fast or do wheelies. You let go and you introduce those possibilities. But you take the risk because you want to have them learn to ride the bicycle. You want them to know that freedom. And of course, this letting go happens again and again and again in your life together. You wave them off into class on that first day of primary one. And before you know it, you're waving them off to university or you're waving them off in honeymoon or you're waving them off after their first visit to your place with a new grandchild. And you realize that you have done your job. You've parented. Out of love, you've created a space where they have grown into their freedom and become who they are, while at the same time still staying vitally connected to you. Now, is it such a stretch to think that something similar might be going on with God and how he relates to his creation? God is all 
powerful, yes. But what if God, in birthing the universe, chooses to limit the exercise of his power in the interests of love so that the universe can have a life of its own? What if he chooses to limit himself in the same way a good parent might do for the sake of their child? What if God remains all-powerful but appears not to be because he's choosing not to micromanage the universe in the way we might expect him to? The Bible is clear that God is sovereign in creating and sustaining and redeeming the cosmos. And I was wondering what scriptures to bring you here when I remember this wonderful passage in Colossians, which sums it all up beautifully. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God sovereignly creates, sustains, and redeems. He alone is the first cause, and he alone presides over the whole story from beginning to end. He created everything and called it good, and by the grace of Jesus Christ, he will call it good again at the end. But in creating a space in which human beings can truly and freely exist, it looks like he allows two secondary causes to come into play, and they are natural law and human freedom. They seem to be the necessary conditions that allow creatures like us to exist, creatures who can freely love God and choose to respond to him. But those secondary causes open the door not just to joy, but also potentially to sorrow. Let's start by thinking about nature and natural law. Looking around us, it seems clear that while God set the natural laws in place, he also allows them to work largely without interference. As a general rule, he doesn't micromanage the weather or tidal patterns or animal migration. He lets nature take its course or take gravity. Gravity does what gravity is always meant to do. 
It always obeys its own God-given rules. And gravity is necessary for our survival. But it's also able to crush and to destroy anything in its path without malice or mercy. And we have to be careful of it. If somebody decides to step off a tall building, we don't blame God for the consequences. And we don't expect God to put out a big hand and stop them from falling to the ground. We lay the blame elsewhere, and rightly so. Recapping our Bible story for today, it's gravity that kills the 18 folk who were crushed by the tower at Siloam. Was God behind that, pulling strings? Well, some really wanted him to be, because this tower was part of an aqueduct being built by Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and he was funding it with money that he had taken from the temple treasury. The Jewish people were outraged at this, and they were so annoyed that they refused to help him build it. And these workers in the story must have been among the few who were prepared to take the emperor's shilling, even if it meant the wrath of their peers. They were perfect candidates for a bit of divine judgment. But that doesn't seem to have been what's happening here, at least according to Jesus. He said that the 18 who died were no better or worse than anyone else. He doesn't seem to read divine judgment into it. Most of the time, God seems to let the natural law that he set in motion go its own way. The sun shines, the rain falls, the plants grow, and God consents to it. And when the tectonic plates rub together and cause an earthquake, or the winds gather and cause a tornado, God consents to it. Most of the time, God does not seem to interfere with the natural laws that he himself has set in place. And it's just the same with human freedom, I think. God has created us with a capacity to respond to him, to choose whether to do good or evil, to go his way or our own way. And he consents to our choices which is not to say that he forgets them and won't hold us to account for them. So when a human being uses his or her God-given freedom and power to cruelly exploit another person, is God responsible for that? Isn't it the individual who's choosing to do wrong with their freedom, the one who's responsible? We don't expect God to step in and stop the flying bullet or the flying fist every time someone is going to suffer harm, although we may want him to. But we know that most of the time he doesn't intervene at that level. He seems to let our freedom play out for now, for good or for evil. Who was to blame for the murders of the Galileans in the temple in today's story. 
God? Well, some wanted to say that. Galileans were generally thought of as being a troublesome lot, northern rustics and rabble-rousers that they were, at least as some thought of them. Maybe they deserved what they got, some people were thinking. But Jesus says, no. Those Galileans were no better or worse than any others. This wasn't judgment. This was just another instance of people using their God-given freedom to do bad things. Observing the natural world around us, it seems clear that God, for his own purposes, has allowed natural law and human freedom to have their place in the world. And we need to take that into consideration when we think about our current situation with coronavirus. The origins of the virus are still very unclear. Some link it to biological research institutes in Wuhan, some to illegal food products being sold in one of the local markets there, and some think it may just be a natural occurrence of other kinds. But whichever of these it turns out to be, is it right to lay the blame squarely at God's feet when it's more likely that the secondary causes of natural law and human freedom are to blame? We've covered a lot of ground this morning. So as I bring things to a close, let me try and draw this together for you. I've been arguing that God is all-powerful in creating sustaining and redeeming the cosmos. But in this interim time, he seems to have given natural law and human freedom space to operate. He's consented to them and their operations, and he doesn't seem to micromanage the universe. That doesn't make him less powerful. It just means that he's choosing to constrain himself and his powers for the sake of love as every good parent does. That seems to me to be the best explanation of how things are in our world. But we've one more crucial step to make before we've actually finished, and this is vital. Because the God I've described to you so far could easily be seen as a divine watchmaker, setting the whole thing going and then stepping back and not getting involved anymore. And there's an old word for that kind of thinking. It's called deism. But the God of deism is very far from the God we meet in the Bible and especially in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that our God isn't remote. He gets involved. He participates. Natural law and human freedom play a big part in our lives, but they aren't the only players. God is still intimately involved in what goes on in his universe. But we'll hear more about how and why that works next week in the final part of our series. Amen. Will you join me now as we 
pray together again. Let us pray. In our prayers for others this morning, we're going to use a short response. When I say, Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega, I'd invite you to respond. Help us in our time of trouble. Lord, you're the Alpha and the Omega. Help us in our time of trouble. Let us pray. We pray to the Lord, to the God who is our shelter and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. We pray for our communities, for the elderly, confined to their homes and separated from family and support. For children removed from school. For those who have lost their source of income. For those who fear for their home. For those who have no home. For those offering extraordinary everyday kindness. For the sick and the bereaved, the lonely and the isolated, and for those especially on our hearts this morning. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Help us in our time of trouble. We pray for the young and those in education. For those anxious about grades, getting a place at university or finding employment. For those keeping schools going, for the children of key workers and those working hard to provide resources so that parents can homeschool. And for all who are busy making plans for the end of lockdown and figuring out how best to manage learning in these changed circumstances. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Help us in our time of trouble. We pray for our key workers, for all medical staff and hospital workers who go to work knowing the risks that they face, for medical researchers seeking ways to prevent and to cure, for social workers protecting the vulnerable, for care workers providing contact and support to those who have no other help, for farmers, delivery and shop workers keeping the nation provisioned, for cleaners and janitors fighting the spread of infection in our public spaces. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Help us in our time of trouble. We pray for our world, Lord, for the leaders of the nations and their governments, for the areas most besieged by the pandemic, for broken places where healthcare and resources are scarce and where the pandemic brings further suffering, and for wisdom as we try to chart a passage through this crisis. 
And on this weekend, when we remember the 75th anniversary of VE Day, we thank you for those who gave their lives in the service of our country, defending us against tyranny and warped ideology. Those who continue to defend us from threats of all kinds, and those working hard to foster the spirit among the nations which will keep us from violence and war. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Help us in our time of trouble. And we pray for the church, for the light of faith and hope to keep burning brightly within us, for the vision to find ways to be good neighbours and friends in these days, for closeness even as we are required to be apart and for wisdom as we try to discern what we need to take up and what we need to let go as we slowly emerge from this period of confinement. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Help us in our time of trouble. Lord, we bring you our hopes and fears, our joys and sorrows, thanking you that you are our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. So hear these and all our silent prayers, because we ask them all in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to take a minute just to remind you that this is the beginning of Christian Aid Week. And of course, normally there'll be lots of activities going on, which we can't do this year because of uh, the virus. But I feel it's important that where we can, we do support the work of Christian Aid. Uh, we've all been saying over the last few months that um, despite the, the coronavirus and all the, the, the stress that's been put in our NHS, um, NHS has to keep functioning um, regular. Illnesses have to be treated, cancer and diabetes, lung disease, all the normal uh, illnesses have to be treated as well. They don't stop just because coronavirus is on the go. But when you expand your view and you take things into account in the wider world, it's the same there too. Poverty doesn't stop, injustice doesn't stop, disease doesn't stop in the two-thirds world simply because we're in the grip of this pandemic. And if we found it hard to cope, in one of the strongest economies in the world, how much more difficult is it for people in the two-thirds world just now, with regular illness, but also with coronavirus hitting them too? I would encourage you to try and, and look beyond our own immediate needs, which are many just now, and remember how much worse it is for people in other parts of the world. And if you're able to support Christian Aid, even just with a few pounds, I know they would be most grateful of that help. I think a lot of charities are very concerned about being able to continue their work uh, for the foreseeable future in the light of what's happening across the world. So go to the Christian Aid webpage if you can, have a think about what you'd be able to give. And even though we can't support them through our, our regular activities, we as a congregation can still make our contribution to their valuable work overseas. Thank you. Closing hymn this morning, 
is loving spirit. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>